Support for today's podcast episode comes from ZipRecruiter. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. Recovery Elevator, episode 189. It just escalates so slowly and you really are blind to how dangerous it's becoming and and how maybe you're not drinking the same as everybody else. And I think it took me a really long time to realize that. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Sarah. She's 37 years old. She's from Kent in the United Kingdom, and she's been sober for 162 days. Before the interview, we argued for a bit of who had the accent. Well, we eventually reached a draw, but between me and you, it's her. It's a fantastic interview. I know you guys are going to love it. Before we get any further, let's hear from Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it didn't work. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group, which is capped at 300 members to ensure intimacy. Then you get access to the Cafe RE forum outside of Facebook, which means you don't need a Facebook account to be part of Cafe RE. Both are private and only members can see who is in the groups and what is said. In the forum and Facebook group, you get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For just $19 a month, you too can join the conversation. You can be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups and retreats, participate in book club, movie club, and more. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive this setup fee. I hope to see you there. One of the many hats I wear, which I'm currently trying to find hat racks for, is I've got a wedding DJ business. And I was chatting with one of my DJs who came to pick up their equipment for the wedding they had that weekend. I could tell this DJ, and his name is Kyle, seemed somewhat flustered. So I asked him how he's doing. He told me that he was frustrated and he felt stuck. He said he wants to be a famous DJ who is known worldwide, and to do that, he needs to create a brand for himself, create an Instagram account, and get millions of followers. He needs to play the biggest venues on the planet and have his own jet. I was like, oh, okay. Well, Kyle, let me ask you a question. What about DJing do you like? He then mentioned a couple moments when he was one with the music. An example just recently took place at a friend's birthday party, and sometimes he's one with the music when he's DJing a wedding. He talked about how no other feeling in the world could compare to those moments. I said, Kyle, I can't help you procure your jet, but let me tell you a story I heard a long time ago. And since I'd only heard the story and had never told it, I completely butchered it. But I still think I managed to get the point across, and while telling the story, I realized how applicable to addiction this is. A successful American businessman named Todd, yeah, let's go with that, named Todd, was at his daughter Michelle's wedding in a small, sleepy fishing town in Mexico. Todd got an important call and had to step outside. After soothing out the matter back home, he looked out towards the sunset and saw a fisherman tying up his small boat to the pier. Todd takes a couple steps forward, peers inside the small boat, and there were three large yellowfin tuna. 
Todd was curious, so he strolled over to ask the Mexican fisherman some questions. Hey there, what's your name and how long did it take you to catch those fish? The fisherman replied, I'm Pedro. And with a glance back at the setting sun, since Pedro was not wearing a watch, Pedro then says, I don't know, an hour, mas o menos? Todd then asks the fisherman, what are you going to do with the three fish? The fisherman said, well, I'm going to sell two of these fish to my friend Miguel, who has a stall at the fish market, for about 200 pesos each, and I'm going to keep the third fish to feed my family. Todd looks at the fisherman, looks at the sun, looks at the sea, and the gears start turning in Todd's head. Todd then asks, well, why didn't you stay out longer and catch more fish? And before the fisherman could answer, Todd asks another question, what do you do with the rest of your time? Pedro says, well, I, I sleep late, I fish a little, I play guitar, and I hang out with my beautiful wife and family. I have a full and busy life. Todd just laughed and says, I've got a Harvard MBA and I could help you. Here's what you should do. You should spend more time fishing and with the proceeds, buy a bigger boat. With the proceeds from the bigger boat, you could buy several boats. Eventually, you would have a fleet of fishing boats. And then, instead of selling your catch to a middleman, you would sell directly to the processor, eventually opening your own cannery. You would control the product, processing, and distribution. You with me here? The fisherman looks at Todd and says, and then? Todd says, well, eventually, you would need to leave this small coastal fishing village and move to Mexico City, and then L.A., and then eventually New York City, where you will run your expanding enterprise. The fisherman ponders this for a second and then asks Todd, how long will this take? The American replies, 15 to 20 years if you push it, but very doable in 20 to 25 years. Sure, it's going to be hard. There will be long, very long hours and probably some extremely stressful situations, but it will all be worth it. Trust me, I have an MBA from Harvard. I don't think I mentioned that already. The fisherman then asks, well, what then after 25 years? Todd laughed. He said, that's the best part. When the time is right, you would announce an IPO and sell your company stock to the public and become very rich. You would make millions. The fisherman responds with, millions? Then what? Todd says, well, Pepe, here's where it really gets good. Then you could retire, move to a small sleepy fishing village where you would sleep late, fish a little, play guitar, and hang out with your beautiful wife and family. Todd then looks up at the setting sun and goes, oh, fuck me. I love this story and be very careful of this game this story takes place in the professional and entrepreneurial setting but i know i've personally fallen into this trap when it comes to my sobriety as well the game of when this happens then i'll be okay when i get one week 30 days 90 days one year of sobriety then it's all gonna be gravy Sure, those are fantastic milestones that need to be celebrated, but it's important to recognize we may already be living the life we've been dreaming about. Back to the conversation with a DJ named Kyle at my office. After I garbled up a less refined version of this story, Kyle had a perplexed look on his face. I said, Kyle, that bliss, the high you're experiencing while DJ, is you doing what you love to do while tapping into the present moment. You're already there. You've already made it. You don't need to fill stadiums and tour the world in your private jet to find happiness. You've already got it. No matter where we are in our journey, we need to stop and see how applicable this story can be in our own life. For most of us, probably including the listener right now, once we eliminate alcohol in our life, we're going to be able to realize we've already got enough. Before we hear from Sarah, let's hear from ZipRecruiter. 
As an entrepreneur, I can tell you the hardest part about it is putting together the right team. You know what's not smart? Using your relatives to fill in at work while you look for staff. But you know what is smart? Going to ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator to hire the right person. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply, so you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address at ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. At ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. E-L-E-V-A-T-O-R. ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Okay, now let's hear from Sarah. Sarah, how are you? Hey, Paul, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, I'm doing great also. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's taken us a while to finally get there, but I think we've, we've finally nailed it now. We're, we're doing it. Yeah, and listeners, you can hear uh, one of the two of us has an accent, depending on where you're listening from. So it kind of takes a while to figure out the time difference, but I'm glad we got it nailed down and we're going to do this. We are. Yeah, before we get any further, Sarah, how long have you been sober? Today, Paul, I have been sober for 162 days. Nice job. And what's the sobriety date? That would be the 28th of February, 2018, this year. Wow. So what is that? Almost four months? Four months? No. No, well, no one more. Five, five and a half. Five, five and, and a half. half. That's right. Nice job. <laughs> Don't take it away from me. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I'd be upset <laughs> if I were you. <laughs> yeah. Come on, Paul. Yeah, come on. Yeah, well, Sarah, give listeners a little background about yourself. Maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, do you have a family? But most importantly, Sarah, what do you like to do for fun? Okay, well, um, I am from a little country town in the southeast of England. Um, it's about an hour away from London. I, it's the town I grew up in, actually. I lived away for a little while. I lived overseas for about 10 years um, and then came home with my two children. I was married. I'm now divorced. I've been back here with the kids for about five years. I've forgotten the rest of the questions. <laughs> what do I do for fun? Uh, I'm still figuring that out. I'm trying to still get to know myself. And I think that's the fun part of sobriety, even though I've only been, you know, I've been sober for five and a half months, which is a good chunk of time. I'm still discovering that. I mean, I love spending time with my kids and I'm, I'm just loving that more and more. Just being a really present parent um, now that wine isn't getting in the way. I love being outdoors, especially since we've had such a beautiful summer. I love camping. I love nature. I just make, I love making sure the kids are well and happy. And that's my priority at the moment. Yes, yeah, so I'm not married, but I do have a very lovely man who's walking this journey along with me. Um, he's really understanding. So I'm so grateful for him. And what do I do for a living? I, I've done so many different jobs over my lifetime, which I think that's a good thing, kind of maybe makes me interesting. I don't know. But I recently quit my job in retail management. And I've started my own little cleaning business, which has given me loads more time with the kids. I'm less stressed at home, which has been great. And I started that about a month before I quit drinking. So it's just been incredibly useful to have all that time to myself I've had so much time to be introspective um, because I've been working on my own so I have been binging podcasts and YouTube videos and 
all sorts of things like that to sort of listen and help myself in my recovery. So yeah, I've been doing that for about six months now, but I'm I'm sure there'll be change around the corner. (laughs) Yeah, I think there will be. And we're going to dive into what you just said about this cleaning business and how that's afforded you time to, you know, clean, clean houses while listening to podcasts and just be in your head. And now it's time to exit that, that headspace. But we're going to talk about that in a bit because I'm excited about the next chapter of your life. Yeah, me too. Yeah. But before we get any further, give listeners some background about your drinking from start to finish where we're at now. Take a couple minutes, take as long as you want, and and, and make sure to include dates, and not dates, but time, time frames, how old you are, when things like that happen. And, and yeah. did you ever have any rules in the place? When did you first try to quit drinking, things like that? I'm excited to hear okay. okay. I guess I didn't really realize I had a problem till fairly recently, I'd say in the last couple of years. So I had a long career of kind of mindless drinking before that real realization came about. I grew up in a pretty heavy drinking family I hear people say this on the podcast all the time but where we live everybody drinks (laughs) (laughs) wait what (laughs) it's the same here and I was actually surprised when I realized it was the same in the states as well for some reason I had this impression that you guys just didn't drink very much but it's, it's the same everywhere I think so yeah my family we're all we're all big drinkers we're a really close family but we've always grown as we've grown up it's sort of been the norm you know when we get together it's barbecues or it's Christmas and the drinking starts immediately and you know friends as well it's just part of the culture it's part of life everybody drinks and if you don't drink then you're you are a bit of an outcast people don't really understand why that is so yeah I I had that growing up and I never really knew anybody with too much of a problem with it it was just heavy drinking was fairly normal I don't I don't think my drinking really got out of control until perhaps I was living overseas and living the expat life you kind of also there's there's a lot of drinking involved and funnily enough I actually lived in a dry state in India and I think that drinking became even more something I could really obsess over even more because alcohol was very hard to get hold of so when you did it was really precious so there were just nights and days of drinking mindlessly I had my two children who are now 12 and 9 and obviously quit drinking for those two pregnancies but straight away after they were born it was like where's my wine mm-hmm. <laughs> back on the wine I've also heard that on this podcast yes yeah I've heard other mums say the same thing as well and it just doesn't register that it's not okay for some reason it just escalates so slowly and you really are blind to how dangerous it's becoming and and how maybe you're not drinking the same as everybody else. And I think it took me a really long time to realize that. And with the, I think I remember questioning once when I lived overseas that maybe I was drinking too much. I think I was having like five glasses of wine most evenings and somebody making a comment that perhaps that was too much. But I just didn't, you know, it's just a throwaway comment. I didn't think any more of it. When I came home after the breakdown of my marriage, I became a sole parent. My ex-husband didn't move home. He stayed overseas. So I really did bring the children up on my own. And I think wine then became my time. And I really bought into like the mummy needs wine culture, um, which I see everywhere now. It's like a reward. It's deserved. I've, I'm bringing up two children on my own. My wine is my right every evening. And before I knew it, it was something that I was looking forward to every single day. 
and I didn't really question whether everybody else was doing that or not. It, again, it just wasn't a problem to me. It was a fun thing, you know, and you'd compare notes with other people that you knew also drank and you'd encourage each other almost and be justifying your drinking because you deserve it, right? Well, you can so, tell yourself that and the, and the mind will spin it, but <laughs> keep going. Exactly. Yeah, you, 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 you totally spin it. I mean, there were, there were several r- warning signs and red flags I suppose over the last few years my parenting never I don't think really really suffered I definitely was always drinking in front of the children but I don't think there was ever any situation where I put them in danger or they were scared or frightened my daughter has since said to me she doesn't like it or didn't like it when we'd get together as a family group and everybody would be drinking she would say it's like everybody leaves and I don't know who's who's left Mm. who's who's safe to talk to and it's like everybody becomes somebody else and since I've quit drinking I can see that now too when I'm around drinkers they do become somebody else they sort of take on this persona and if you're a child that's quite scary it's also the concept that we're not connecting you were there but we're not present yeah and you mentioned there were a couple red flags can you give us a couple specifics a time when the red flag did show up yeah I suppose two or three years ago I was really suffering from anxiety or my anxiety was becoming a lot worse I was feeling quite depressed and I didn't know why and you're in that cycle of you know you feel that depression now I know why but you know you feel anxious you wake up feeling anxious um, and then by the time you get to the end of the evening you have a drink and that anxiety will go away and I still didn't connect the dots but I remember going to my doctors quite a few times and I'd kind of diagnosed myself with general generalized anxiety disorder I decided that was what I had and I had all the symptoms and no medical professional was really taking me seriously and they wouldn't diagnose me and I went to one particular doctor one morning when I was really really desperate and I asked him to help me I said I need some antidepressants or something and he just looked at me he was so good he really took some time with me and he said how much do you drink and I said, well, like a bottle a night, maybe sometimes more, definitely more on the weekends. I was I was honest with him. And he just said, that's what's causing your anxiety. And I remember I remember feeling quite angry about it because I was still very much in denial at that point that my drinking could be causing any problems (laughs) whatsoever. And I didn't want to I didn't want to stop. Like the idea of stopping drinking to me was completely out of the question like not a chance was I ever going to be a person who would not have wine not have drink in her so life what was that feeling like when he said Sarah that's the source of your anxiety maybe for worse actually because it was like he'd given me a solution but it wasn't a solution that I had any access to in my brain my brain would not allow me to go down that route it was like he'd said here's your answer but you can't have it I'm going to snatch it away because to me, there was no way I could stop drinking. I just wasn't that person who would, who was a teetotaler. It just wasn't going to fit with my personality or the beliefs I had about myself or my lifestyle or, or anything. So, so if, I, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's almost like that idea of stopping drinking had really never crossed your mind. No, 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 it didn't. Wow. And okay. I think, I think that was the seed though. That was probably about two years ago that that happened. And that, planted a seed in my brain that 
started to grow. Um, and even though at that point I was not willing to hear what he said, even though he was so sweet and kind and I walked away thinking, yeah, thanks for your time, but there's no way that's happening. It definitely made me start thinking and looking into what effects my drinking was actually having. But it still took me two years to get to the point of, of actually stopping. I was drinking at least a bottle of wine every single night. I was waking up in the morning and saying to myself, oh my God, I can't remember coming to bed and I feel like crap and I'm not doing that again. I just, I'm not going to do that tonight. And then I'd have that morning of definitely deciding that wasn't going to happen. And then by lunchtime, I'd feel a little bit better and I'd be like, oh, but, you know, maybe I could we'll just start do tomorrow. that. Yeah, I'll do that another time. Yeah. And the minute that I made that decision to drink again that night, I felt so much better because the mental craving had been satisfied. It was like the the wine, the, my addiction was telling me drink, 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 drink. And, you know, the other side of me was saying, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink. Once I decided to drink, then it shut the addiction up and everything was well with the world again. So I thought, you know, everything was fine. And that's the cognitive dissonance. You know, your addictive voice is so loud. So and Sarah, you, that's, that's two things. It's the cognitive dissonance. And I also just finished the book, You Are the Placebo by Joe Dispenza. And uh -huh. there's studies that show that the instant we make a decision, an example of I will never drink again, our bodies will actually create chemicals in our brains and in our bodies to make us feel uncomfortable because we almost decide, as soon as we decide to make the biggest decision of life change in our life, chemically, we are different after we make that decision. It, it's fascinating. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, I haven't heard that one before. Yeah, I mean, but we've both felt it, right? Yeah, absolutely. It makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's just so hard. I had that battle for, for almost a couple of years of not every day because some days I'd be like, well, screw this. I'm just going to carry on and and just pretend this isn't happening. But on the days where I knew deep down there was a real problem and then I wasn't able to do anything about it, you know, that that's heartbreaking. But then at the same time, you, you're, you're satisfying your addiction. So you kind of feel relief at the same time, if that makes sense. Yeah, and can you talk to us about a time, because you just said it, it's it's devastating when you know what you need to do, but you think you can't do it. Is there a specific time where you can tell us about that? Lots of times I've had that feeling. I, I knew it was bad, but I have just felt like I was stuck down a hole and someone had taken the ladder away. And it was almost like I could see myself, imagine like a pit, and I was in the bottom of the pit, and I could see myself at the top, well and happy and not worrying about any of this but I couldn't get there I couldn't get to that Sarah I couldn't get to that point every day was the same every day I'd wake up and say no I'm not going to do this anymore but every day I did and it was it was just a heartbreaking cycle and I think the, the cycle once I realized there was a problem it almost made it worse it was almost like I told myself I had a drinking problem so my drinking problem became more evident and my behavior became unpredictable and I when I was drinking I was argumentative I couldn't trust myself I was starting to isolate to drink I didn't want anyone getting in the way of my drinking and I was resentful of them if they did you know anxious and paranoid when I was hungover I hated myself I was obsessed it was such a horrible horrible cycle and I had the physical symptoms as well which I was starting to not be able to ignore you know mm -hmm waking up in the middle of the night in a panic at three o'clock not being able to breathe it makes my heart race even talking about it now it honestly does overheating um I was having a lot of facial flushing it, every, like my first sip of a drink my face would go bright red and sometimes the top of my chest would go red just 
where it became undeniable, it became undeniable to me that I had to do something about it. Nothing bad had happened, but I knew it was inevitable. I knew something bad was going to happen if I didn't stop. So Sarah, everybody's reached this moment in their journey, and I love the way you described it. You're at the bottom of a hole without a ladder. You can see the tip of the well. You see your happy life. We reach a point where there's almost some tranquility involved in it, but we just say, okay, now what? Mm. This is acceptance. Mm -hmm. I'm accepting my current state. What's worked in the past has not worked. Mm. I'm ready to make some change. So how did yeah. you do it? How did you break that cycle? It might sound really simple, but I just decided. I just made the decision with as much of myself as I could muster. And I had been listening to your podcasts for maybe a few weeks, not not a huge amount of time, only a few weeks. But the day I decided I was going to do it was the day I joined Cafe RE as well. And I posted on there and I just decided I, I just knew I had to do it because I couldn't carry on this way this path was only going to lead in one direction and that was devastation devastation for my children uh, my relationship my life was going to go down the pan I could see it happening so I just took the leap I just decided and I became very stubborn about it so it sounds like you had a moment of clarity when you just when you decided this is no longer working for me what was that like yeah. I, I don't know how it came about or what made it different to every, any other morning because I'd said that to myself so many times, but it definitely, I knew it was different. I knew I was going to do it. I hadn't told anybody at that point. It was still a secret and I didn't tell anyone for a little while, but it felt really good. It felt empowering from that minute and it hasn't stopped feeling empowering from that minute. It, it just gets better and better and better as time goes on. Wow. And I'm going to start asking this question more and more is what were you thinking when you had that moment of clarity? And for myself, and, and I've asked this question a couple of times and I ask it for you, but for me and what I've gotten out of the other people that have asked this question is they weren't thinking. And they were, I, I remember when I dumped out my last beer, I was just, I was looking at the wind going the trees, the, the fall, the, the colors were changed on the leaves and it just hit me. If I don't dump out this beer, I am done. Like, mm. I'm toast. Yeah. What was your state of mind, if you remember, when that happened? I think it was more of a feeling. And I, I was I think I had so much self-loathing and such a lack of self-worth for so long, not just through the drinking, but for years before that as well. It was almost like a feeling of being worth it. And it was only a small nugget of that feeling, but a glimpse, a, a glimpse of a belief that actually you are worth doing this. And I think a lot of the reasons I hadn't achieved it before was because I didn't believe I was worthy of really many good things at all and sobriety was one of them there was always this voice in my head saying that's not for you that isn't that isn't for you you're not good enough for that you know you just need to stay down here in this hole but at that moment I realized that wasn't true even in a small degree I realized that wasn't true so I think that that's what sparked it yeah, I need to find a better way to rephrase that question because it's almost in a gap of thinking and it's not a thought, it's a feeling. So I love mm. the way you answered mm. that. And so I didn't know it was your first day when you decided to quit you join Cafe Ari. I've done actually uh, survey monkeys on this. People listen to the podcast for an average of like six to seven months before joining Cafe Ari. So nice job on that. Yeah, and, and I went all in. <laughs> you, you, I, I remember seeing your videos like the first week. I mean, you, you went big right off the bat. It's I did. So, I really did. I threw myself in there. Yeah. And it saved my life. Honest to God, it has changed my life, that group. It really has. I love every single person in there. 
and and you make the group a better place. And, and what has it been like for you? What was it like for the first twenty four hours, the first week, the first month? And did you did you experience cravings? And and how did you get past yeah. it? Yeah, lots of cravings. Oh, the first few days, weeks are, are a real roller coaster, aren't they? I mean, I threw myself into the group, and I think you have to throw yourself into something. I think you have to realize that you can't just go, oh, I'm going to quit drinking forever and then just get on with your day. You have to throw yourself into it. You have to change your mindset. You have to learn. You have to research. I mean, I'm not saying you all have to. I'm just saying this is what's worked sure, for me. Sure, get it. And I, I did. I did throw myself into the group. Every time someone suggested something, I did it. You know, someone was like, make a video. So I made a video. Then someone said, find an accountability partner. And I was lucky enough to be partnered up with Candice, who we're still in touch all the time. And I love her. She's she's my other sister now. And we have similar sobriety dates. So we've been, really been able to sort of cheer each other along. Reading literature, literature, reading tons of books, educating myself, not only in sobriety and just self-help in general has really helped and that's what I clung to those first few days I was excited which helped I think the first few days were excitement and anticipation of what my life could look like and then as that initial excitement starts to wear off and you face the reality of a life without alcohol and the cravings I think what really helped me with the cravings was realizing that every time you deny yourself that drink, you're rewiring your brain. And I found that really satisfying to think that I was creating a new, healthier pathway away from drinking every time I beat a craving. So it was like a little reward. You think, yeah, I've I've had a craving. I'm going to get through this with gritted teeth. And then at the end of it, I've just made my life a bit easier for the next time. So that really helped me. Also, just lots of self-care, really taking things easy on myself, eating sweet things in the evening, getting early night, because I think you have those things to look forward to. You know, when you're drinking, it's that thing you look forward to at the end of the day. So having something else to look forward to really helped me, just buying really nice dessert to have after dinner or planning to watch a movie with the kids, just getting to bed early and getting some sleep. And being gentle with yourself because your body, not just your body, but your mind is going through so many different changes and you've abused your body for so long, it's going to take a long time for that to fix. So I did suffer with pause a little bit in the early days. I was very clumsy, forgetful. Um, I had quite a lot of confusion. I was quite emotional. And you just sort of, you just hang in there. You just hang in there because everybody's telling you it's going to get easier. It does get easier. And it it does. It really, really does get easier. Sarah, you're hitting on some key points in recovery. And one of them I want to discuss a little bit more is neuroplasticity, which is a real thing. Every time we make the decision to not drink and we successfully get through those situations, new brain circuitry is created. There's That's been proven. And, yeah. and I want to chat with you about Sarah 2.0. <laughs> ah. <laughs> you, you did this post in Cafe and I just loved reading it. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but snippets of it. You yeah. said, and this is while, while you're on the clock working, doing your cleaning business, I've had yeah. six months to get stuck in my head, understand my brain so that I can finally get out of my head and let go of all my overthinking. Yes. I've cried cleaning bathroom mirrors where I couldn't bear to look at myself. It has been the best medicine, but I think I know it's not my long-term purpose. There are more meaningful things on the horizon, and I'm going to focus on getting there instead. I feel like I'm coming to an end of the first chapter, and I'm about to start a new, really exciting chapter. Talk to us yeah. more about that, Sarah. 
Well, it is exciting. I think what I would really love to do is to work in recovery. I'd love to to live this life and to help other people find a way to live it as well. And I'm not sure how that looks yet. I'm really only in the very early stages of only just researching it. And obviously, I'm still an infant in recovery myself. So I still have to be careful with myself. But I do have some rudimentary qualifications in counselling and also in hypnotherapy. And now I'm a recovering addict. So <laughs> I've got that going for me You're as well. Walking the walk. Yeah, um, I just love to to work with people that want to to learn about this and to improve their lives and to maybe to, to help them quit drinking. Because I feel like that's where I'm being drawn. I just feel like that's what my life, what I need to be doing. And I've never really known, you know, people say, what's your purpose? And I've never known the answer to that question. But I feel like it might be, it might be that. So yeah, we'll have to see. But I'm not going to do anything too impulsive because that's, <sighs> That's a bit slightly alcoholic behavior. but <laughs> True. And Sarah, the good news is in this new life without alcohol, we can do whatever we want. But there's yeah, something in this post I, I think is even a little bit more important that I want to chat about. Mm-hmm. It's getting out of your head mm-hmm. and what that means to you. Oh, it's just meant everything. It's been s- such a big part of my recovery. Quitting drinking isn't really the biggest thing. I mean, obviously, you have to quit drinking to recover. But the biggest part of my recovery really has been calming down my mind and to be and understanding that I am not my thoughts. And that has been just life changing, really, honestly, to to understand how I can just calm down by just stepping back from my brain for a minute and observing what's going on in there. Give myself a moment. All my decisions are better. Everything has more clarity. Life makes more sense. I've never been as awake as I am in my life at the moment and have such a clear understanding of what is important as I am right now. And I know this is only the beginning. That's what's so exciting. I I just can't wait to learn more about that. I really can't. As you mentioned, your heart is pulling you in the right direction. You need to quiet the mind and follow. And everybody's on their own journey, their own timeline. Mm-hmm. But I almost, with envious ears... Here, here you with uh, not just, I mean, with, with five and a half months of sobriety, that's incredible. You're way ahead of the game, at least where I was. I had a light bulb moment you know, recently in my life where I was mm-hmm. just like, fuck, the answer's been there the entire time. Mm-hmm. And I just had to quiet the mind. You know, stop looking for external stuff. Yeah. It's all inside. Yeah. And, and I have something that can never be taken away from me yeah. because it never left. <laughs> no. stuff. It's just you you pile on all this, you know, everything you need is there. You have everything you need and you pile on all this other stuff in your brain and you get so distracted by such silly things and worried about such silly things. And actually, when you stop and just be in the moment, everything else falls away. And there really is nothing that can go wrong when you do that. You just need to remember. I mean, people who do that for their whole lives are obviously spiritually enlightened and they're living lives that I could only hope to live. I'm only practicing it on a very, very small scale because it it takes time to learn and to practice it every day is hard because we still have to go about our daily lives. But every time I remember, I do it. And every time I feel my brain going off in a a direction that's not particularly healthy, I I can stop it. And I, I was never able to do that before. And I've only learned that through recovery I've only learned that because I've stopped drinking and it it goes back to really recognizing that addictive voice you know once you recognize Mm -hmm. the addictive voice 
you realize that there's all these other voices <laughs> and that's not like I've got loads of voices in my brain everybody has loads of voices in their brain it's just we don't really we think that's us and it's not us we're just witnessing those voices and Sarah how and do you stop those voices you just notice them and then they start to quieten down you just notice that they're chattering away and then actually they lose their volume there was a really good I really struggled with meditation all my life I've always wanted to be able to do it and I've never been able to really do it because my mind is so loud and I was listening to Eckhart Tolle recently and he has a good way of doing the meditation and he says if you have trouble with it then just sit down close your eyes breathe and ask yourself I wonder what my next thought is going to be mm. and then see what comes because when you say that you realize there's actually nothing happens there's no thought I mean eventually one comes along and it comes in and and then you notice it for what it is it's a thought and then you focus back on your breathing again and you ask yourself the same question I wonder what my next thought's going to be and eventually if you do that for, for a while the gaps between saying that sentence and a thought coming in kind of get longer and longer I'm still not good at meditation I'm still practicing well there is no such thing as a bad yeah. meditation but that's the end all goal is creating longer and longer gaps between yeah. the thoughts and yeah. that's why I asked you how you do it how mm -hmm. I do it in meditation looks different you know you're like oh great I just had a great meditation how do I do it in the normal work day or the, when I'm not meditating for me I simply calmly and say it with a gentle stop it's, this happens a lot when I drive I just have to say stop yeah. mm -hmm. and I slow down and I just instantly feel better and, mm -hmm. and Sarah, I want to question something you said earlier and see, you know, dive a little bit further into this. Earlier, you said, you know, if you don't drink in the UK, you're an outcast. Uh, you're looked yeah. at as not normal. Yeah. So I thought the same before I, before I quit drinking. And I've, I, I've looked into it a little more. Not everybody is kung fu fighting. <laughs> no, and, no, no. <laughs> yeah. And I don't drink. It's been almost, uh, it's, been a, it's been a hot minute now. And so yeah. are you looked at as an outcast? Are you not normal out there in the UK? Well, I still, I'm still, I haven't told like everybody that I don't drink because obviously you don't need to shout it from the rooftops. That's something I thought I should do at the beginning. And then I've realized that you actually don't need to do that. Nobody really cares. <laughs> but when I've gone out, I've just had a lime and soda or I've just had a bottle of non-alcoholic beer and nobody's actually asked me. So no, I'm not an outcast, Paul, in answer to your question. <laughs> no, no. Nobody really cares. They there don't go. The people that care are the ones that are close to you and they know you have a problem anyway and they're going to be relieved that you stop drinking. So no one else really matters. And, uh, so uh, the most badass thing about both of us is we don't drink, or at least that's what I yeah. personally feel is the most badass thing about you and me. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, a quick anecdote before we get to the rapid fire round. So I've even done podcast episodes about how uh, it, it, there's alcoholism, drinking is rampant across the globe. However, when I did a pub crawl, a business in Granada, Spain, uh, early 20s, which was the conduit for me buying the bar in Spain, at yeah. the end of pub crawls, there's me and three other really good friends. We said to ourselves, holy shit, people from the UK and England, they can drink. <laughs> they can drink. They can. Yeah, you we, we were floored. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was one of them, Paul. <laughs> yeah. All right. We have reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Sarah, what was your worst memory from drinking? I think my worst memory from drinking was probably a really fancy ball that I went to with my boyfriend. 
I drank way too many Proseccos and wines on an empty stomach and blacked out for about an hour, went missing. And his all his it was a work do. All his work colleagues, his bosses were looking for me. And they found me curled up in the corner next to somebody else's table. And I do not remember any of it. Awful. Just awful. And next question. We've all heard of the aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating the gig is up? I think my oh shit moment would be, God, it's happened twice as well, when my boss, when I worked in retail, told me she could smell wine on me at nine o'clock in the morning. And that happened twice. Sarah, how are we going to get day 163? What's your plan moving forward? My plan moving forward is to just keep doing what I'm doing, to keep being grateful for all the wonderful things I'm learning um, and how much better my life is and to just remind myself that every day and to just keep being grateful for all the new things that come in. In regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? I think the best advice is one day at a time. I really do because you can overthink and worry about the next event you've got coming up or how am I going to handle Christmas. Don't worry about it. Just do today. Get through today. I want to piggyback on what you said earlier, one day at a time, and let's even drill down one moment at a time, because at the end of the mm -hmm. day, like that's all we have. We don't exactly. have the past. We don't have the future. We no. only have this moment. And yep. what parting piece of guidance can you give the listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking or already taking the journey? I would just say, make it your priority. Make it your number one priority. Just do whatever it takes to not have that drink and really decide and stick to it. Be stubborn about it. Make it the core of who you are. Yeah, do that and take care of yourself. Have some cake. It's okay. And before we depart, Sarah, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic if line. You might be an alcoholic if uh, you examine and study everybody else's drinking habits, looking for permission or justification of your own. And that also includes looking through their fridges and their cupboards to see how much wine they've got. I love it. Thank you so much <laughs> for joining us on the Recovery Elevator podcast today, Sarah. Thank you, Paul. A couple episodes ago, I mentioned that the human brain has 60 to 70,000 thoughts per day, and they're not all right. I had a listener email me another stat, and it is, the human brain can process up to 1,000 words per minute, but we can only speak 250 words per minute. Of those 1,000 words we have every single minute, they're not all true. You are not the voice inside your head, but the one who hears it. When that negative thinking train rolls into the station, you don't have to get on it. Let it hang out for a bit, embrace it, be aware of it, and then just let it go. Okay, Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this.